tell you about all these things that we hope that you would know, and then we assume that you'll take that and run with it and use it in your life, or we hope that you will find ways in which to apply and bring that particular material to bear on your life. But I'm going to go the opposite direction this morning. So instead of spending 90 to 95% describing the text, I'm going to spend 90 to 95% in the application of the text. So we're going to focus far less on the passage, you'll understand why in a moment, and uh, far more time on the praxis of the passage. What I mean by that is the ability to, to live it out, to practice it, to have it shape you and me, to have it change us. You get the idea. So this morning is going to be a bit like a choose-your-own-adventure book. I don't know how many of you read those growing up. Uh, when I was growing up, choose-your-own-adventure books were like cutting-edge novel kinds of things, right? So you would, uh, you would have your normal novel, which you just read from front to back, and uh, it, was, it was good, you know, you enjoyed it, but the choose-your-own-adventure books were fabulous, because you would read to this point in the book where you, as the reader, were starting to figure out the story. You kind of knew where it was headed, uh, you started to know the characters enough that you could go, okay, I get where this is going, and then it, right at that moment... A choice would be presented to you as the reader. It would invite you to participate in the writing of the story, so to speak. And so, like the major character, you could either choose that he or she would respond this way, or they could respond a completely different way, and the choice was yours. And you would choose whichever part of the adventure you wanted them to explore, and then that would take you to the next section, and so you'd flip to that page they'd tell you to turn to, and you'd pick up reading at that juncture, right? And so the whole idea was that you were a participant in the writing or in the understanding of the story. And so this morning we're going to have a little choose-your-own kind of adventure concept. Uh, The difference is the story is going to stay the same the whole time. Uh, the, The thing you get to choose is your application. So we're going to present several applications, a variety of them. And my hope is that from the text you're going to see Uh, some really different and alternative applications that you can draw from. And uh, what I am convinced is that every single one of us will walk out this morning with an opportunity to apply a part of the text. The reason I say that is because I am convinced that there's an application for each of us. In fact, I'm convinced any time you open the Scriptures, you really have to apply it. It demands that. It begs that of you. It basically says, this is what you read, and now it should transform you in some way. And so all of us have to choose an application. Some of you I know are thinking in your head, well, I could choose to do no application. Congratulations, you made a choice, and that in and of itself is a application, right? So, You have an opportunity to uh, look at the text, as we all do this morning, and choose an application. I've uh, titled the talk, The Feeding of the 9,000. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Mark. The book of Mark is where we're going to read from. Mark chapter 6 is the first reading. And uh, you'll notice we're going to read two accounts of Jesus feeding a large group of people. 
The first is the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. It says this, And the apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he, being Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate were the loaves were 5,000 men. Go over to chapter 8. It's just on the other side of the page for some of you, or the next one over. <clears throat> this is the feeding of the 4,000. This uh, happened about two weeks or a few weeks later. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered them, how can, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven basketfuls. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and then he and his disciples got into the boat and departed. Now, uh, you know the story. You've heard this story probably a hundred times before, the feeding of the 5,000, the story of the of the 4,000 is very similar, and so instead of us spending a lot of time explaining the text, I want to jump to the applications. This is, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is the most written about miracle in the Gospels besides the resurrection. It was in all four Gospel accounts, so there's some significance to these feedings. But with that said, let's, uh, let's just jump straight to the application, the story in itself is pretty familiar, all right? So I'm going to give you a few applications this morning. Number one, number one, for some of you, the application this morning is to rest in God's compassion and provision. 
What some of you need to hear this morning, what some of you need to resonate with is the idea that God looks on us with compassion and that compassion motivates him toward provision. What God wants you to know and recognize is his deep love for you. See, what the text says, and it's pretty clear, is that Jesus got off the boat and he had great compassion for them. If you remember from a few weeks back, I talked about the idea of compassion, that he was moved to his guts, to his bowels, to the very core of him. That's what the the technical term means, that he's moved to his bowels. He felt such emotion, such care, such need for these people that it it was like a punch in the gut for him. And that he wanted so badly to demonstrate not just compassion, but also provision. If you have ever doubted that God feels and what he feels about his children, if you've ever wondered what would move God to action, and this text makes it so clear that it is his love and deep affection for his children that moves him, that changes him, that causes him to feel something so deeply. A few years ago, I, I shared this particular quote. I'm going to share again. I think it bears repeating. It's by Brennan Manning. He says this, If you took the love of all the best mothers and fathers who have lived in the course of human history, all of their goodness, kindness, patience, fidelity, wisdom, tenderness, strength, and love, and united all of those qualities in a single person, that person's love would only be a faint shadow of the furious love and mercy in the heart of God the Father addressed to you and me at this moment. At this very moment, the heart of the Father is full and complete love for you. I am convinced that if we ever allowed that idea to sink in enough, it would radically alter everything about our lives. We would never live the same. We would never think the same. We would never continue on with life as we know it if we truly grasp that reality. What this text is saying is that love moved Jesus to compassion and that he wanted then to meet the very basic needs of the people. The text says that he didn't just meet the spiritual needs, but that he actually went out of his way to meet the physical needs. What some of you need this morning, by way of application, is to do nothing. Nothing but to rest on God's provision and his compassion for you. And to know that he is furiously in love with you and wants to know you. Just rest in that. Second application. What you have to God, it's all usable. Offer what you have to God, it's all usable. See, God uses whatever you have to offer. Like one of the things I love about this text is how clear it makes the point that Jesus does not need you. He doesn't need me. 
He can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants to, no matter how He wants to. He can provide for every need, and He does not need you. But here's what I also about this text. That God, in all of His infinite creativity, for some reason, chose to change the world, influence the world, make His plans known, reconcile people to Himself by us participating with Him. It's radically crazy. It makes no sense. If I was God, I was just like, I'll just do this myself. You guys seem to muck it up a little bit. And what he's saying in the midst of it is, I want you to participate. I want you to be involved with reconciling the world to myself. But here's the truth. I think for some of us, the hesitation in us participating is we feel like we don't have enough to offer. We feel like we don't have enough to offer. We feel less than adequate. I know some of you, because I've had these conversations with you, feel like the gift that you have to offer pales in comparison to what these people or that person has to offer. And I would even say there's a sense in the text that what was available was far less than what was capable to meet the need. They're basically going, yeah, so all we, all we have, five loaves, two fishes. So again, why don't you send them home? Right? Why don't we just, like, we know this is what's going to happen. I don't have enough. It's not adequate. It can't meet the need. It won't supply it. Uh, I, I feel like... I have nothing to offer. But I would say that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is never what do you bring to the table. Right? The point of the story is always what do you have? What do you have? It's this reoccurring theme in the scriptures. You've probably noticed it. The question is not can you meet the need. The question is not do you have enough? Are you adequate? Are you capable? Can you accomplish? Right? The question is always, what do you have? Moses said to have a staff. That's all he had. That's all he offered. What do you have? We see here the disciples, maybe they borrowed it from some kid. I mean, that's what they say in the flannel graphs when I was little. Some kid comes up. He's like, I got five loaves, two fishes. Maybe you could use that. I don't know. I don't know exactly how the story went, right? But Jesus goes, yeah, that'll do. Five loaves, two fishes? Yeah, for sure. 20,000 people? Yeah, no, no problem, right? So what do you have? What do you have to offer? It doesn't have to be much. But offer it. But offer it. Regardless of what you have, and God can use it. The question is, what do you have? That's our second application. Now, growing up, I had heard these two applications as being kind of central to this passage. And I think they're great applications. I think we can go a lot of different directions, even personally with these, and go, what do you have to offer? And start to think on that, dwell on that. Talk about that with your small group. And, and talk about that with people on staff or people in your neighborhood, and go, man, what, what is it that I could to give, right? Because we all have something. 
But I want to go a little bit further. I think the passage is inviting us to go a little further in terms of application. So I want to throw out a few more. Here's number three. Dependence is a must. Application number three. Dependence is a must. In this story, the disciples, the text says, right in verse 30, they just returned from being sent out. So if you know the rest of the context, Jesus uh, says, hey guys, this is what you need to do. I'm going to send you out. When you go, this is the kind of the procedure. This is the way it should work. And I'm going to send you and you're going to do amazing things. Uh, and I'm going to work through you to accomplish those things, right? And so he sends them out. And the text says that they were busy doing ministry and then they returned, okay? And it says exactly this. The disciples returned to Jesus and they told him all that they had done and taught. Now, they face this next challenge. Jesus says to them, hey, uh, the, the crowd is here and the crowd is hungry. They've been with me for a while. We need to feed them. And the disciples who have just been doing amazing miracles, accomplishing great things, say, yeah, that, that's not going to work. I think we need to send them home. Uh, we're not going to do anything about it. And Jesus says this, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Now, their response is pretty honest. Uh, so you want me to spend 200 denarii to feed all of them. Is that what you're saying? And Jesus is like, no. Well, it's too late to order Domino's. There's no other way to kind of accomplish the task at hand. Send them home. There's nothing we can do. And I, I wonder if Jesus didn't really kind of set them up for this situation. I wonder if he didn't just go, hey, let's... Watch this. You give them something to eat just so they could get to the point where they said, hey, it's impossible for me and my friends to give them something to eat. It's impo- I cannot do this task. Because I think what he wanted to remind them of is dependence is a must. You notice it said, they said all that they had done and accomplished. And so Jesus says, well, then you, big shot, why don't you do it? You give them something to eat. And then they can't. We can't do it. If you or I ever move to the place of self-reliance, we've lost the plot. We have totally taken our choose-your-own-adventure and gone the wrong way. John says this, abide in me And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you are anything like me, you need this reminder. You need to be reminded again. I mean, we talked about it just a couple months ago. And it's so easy for us to talk about it and go, yeah, everything depends on God. I got this next one, though. I got this one figured out. I can do this on my own. No no worries, God. Let me take, I'll take it from here, okay? It's so easy to get to that place. But the truth is that we are to be completely and fully dependent on Jesus. Application three, dependence is a must. You have to do it. 
You have to do it. Number four. And so far, if none of these three is your choose your own application, I've got a couple more for you. Okay? Number four. Don't be quick to forget God's faithfulness. Don't be quick to forget God's faithfulness. Maybe some of you this morning, the thing you need so badly to begin to apply to your life is a reminder of all that God has done that has proved His faithfulness to you for however long it is that you've known Him or lived. That what you need to hear is that He's faithful. If you've noticed, we read the feeding of the 5,000, right? Which scholars assume was somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 people that were fed because they only counted the men, right? So they counted 5,000 men. One of the texts says... And women and children were also fed and also present, right? So a lot of scholars say somewhere between fifteen uh, to 20,000 people. So we read the feeding of the 5,000. Then we read the feeding of the 4,000, hence the title, the feeding of the 9,000. Now Jesus accomplishes both of these two separate independent miracles that happened in short succession. He did one, fed everybody, a couple weeks pass by, feeds a whole nother group. You have 20,000. You have no idea about 4,000. Maybe it's 15,000 at that given point. But he feeds another massive group. And in the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples see really for the first time that God takes something that is small and inadequate and makes it far supersede anything that's needed. Like if this is what's needed, he goes, oh yeah, well I'll add another 12 baskets. The second one, if this is what's needed, I'll add another 7 baskets. To show you that it's full and complete uh, enough for everyone. That I am the provider for everyone. Now, if, if you were one of the disciples and you saw meat and bread multiplied again, and again, and again, and again. And you know there were guys, girls there that were like, yeah, I'll take seconds and thirds, right? It says they were all satisfied. It wasn't like they, you know, popped in a couple communion wafers and were like, well, that'll tide me over, right? It was like they ate, they ate, like, yeah, that's pretty good. I'll try a little more of that. They ate, and then they had some left over. Completely satisfied. Now, if that would have been you or I watching that experience, I'll just speak for myself, I would have been absolutely shocked. To see a miracle of that magnitude, where you go, you take something, and this is not fish like, you know, they hauled a massive fish in. Some people say these were like sardines, like tiny little fish, you know, that you'd put on a cracker and pop in with one bite kind of fish. And you're talking feeds 20,000 people. That, That image would have been burned in my mind. I would have been like, man, can you believe that happened? I'm never going to forget that. Now we're two weeks later. Two weeks later. And the disciples are facing the exact same situation. They're like, we have no idea what to do. You know, I mean, like, I say we send them home. There's no way in this desolate place we're going to find the food necessary to feed this group of ten to 15,000 people. It can't be done. It's impossible. 
Now we're talking the exact, almost the exact same verbatim kind of statements from one situation two weeks later the next. Here's my temptation when I read that. My temptation is to think the disciples are stupid, right? Like they always mess up. They always don't quite get it. Man, I'm so glad I'm not a disciple, right? And then I'm reminded of how often I need to learn the same lesson numerous times. You been there? The same lesson numerous times. I mean, this is the story of the people of Israel in a nutshell, right? They're rescued from slavery. They're brought to the Red Sea. They're like, we're done for. We're done. God parts the sea, sends them all through, destroys their enemies, they get to the other side, and then they're like, I'm hungry. We're going to die. We should be back in Egypt. This is the worst. Moses, we hate you, right? And so Moses goes to God and says, yeah, everyone's hungry. And God's like, manna. And then they eat. And they eat. And they eat. And they eat. And then they're like, this manna makes me thirsty. No water, right? And Jesus is like, here you go. Here's some water. Just tap on that rock. And water comes gushing out and feeds. We're not, we're not talking that the feeding and the drinking was for like 50 people. Like 2 to 3 million people. That's a lot of water in the middle of a desert. Coming out of a rock. Right? So we, All these people drink till their, their thirst is quenched. And then they're like, we're out of water again. What do we do? And they start complaining again and again, right? So it's like he does a miracle, repeat, amazing, everything's met, all your needs are supplied, doubt. Do it again, doubt. Do it again, doubt, over and over and over and over. I would encourage you, recall for a moment the number of times that God has provided for you in the past only to have you doubt again in the present. Man the story of my life. That he ju- the disciples just saw him provide for 20,000 people. Fast forward a couple weeks later and they're going, we're done for. It can't be done. What do we do? No way to figure it out. So here's a way to maybe begin applying. Some of you need to practice the art of remembering. To, God, to allow God's provision in the past to inform your future. Some of you right now are facing a fresh challenge. Something that like came out of the blue, you weren't expecting it. An adjustment to work or life or health or something where you're going, man, this is not what I had scripted for the beginning of May. This is not what I wanted my summer to look like. This is not what I anticipated would happen near the end of the school year. Whatever circumstance or situation it is, here's my encouragement. Write it down. Whatever you're facing right now, write it down. And say, this is the thing. Okay? And then what I want you to do, with the help of your small group, 
with the help of friends, with the help of family, is to go back, kind of rewind in your life, and, and start recalling the number of times that God met that exact same need or a need very similar to that in which He proved Himself faithful. Allow the past and His faithfulness to inform the future. That if God who has been faithful, it says that His mercies are new every morning. This is a new morning. And He will be more than capable to accomplish whatever it is you or I are facing. So some of us this morning, our application is to don't be quick to forget God's faithfulness. When you're faced with a new challenge, reflect on the many ways that the challenge of the past has been met and allow that to motivate you to understand and place your trust in His provision for the future. I want to toss out one final idea. Okay, so we've got four choose-your-own-applications. Here's the fifth and final for this morning. Don't go thinking you've figured out who is included. Don't go thinking you've figured out who is included. <clears throat> now, I'm, as you've read through these stories in the past, it's probably likely caught your attention that the setting of the two stories is dramatically different. So Jesus... And the feeding of the 5,000 is in a Jewish area, speaking to Jewish people. Many would speculate the entire crowd would have been Jewish. And he's feeding the 5,000 in that particular setting. The feeding of the 4,000, you probably picked up on this as you were reading, that it is a completely a Greek region in which he is doing this particular miracle. All of the audience would have been primarily Greek. It would have been Gentiles. And uh, that would have been two completely separate, different audiences. So you might be thinking to yourself, so what, Russ? What's the application in that? So here's my speculation. I think the reason why the disciples from one week to just a few weeks later completely did not expect to do for Jesus to do the miracle again is because it was a different group of people. Okay, now stick with me for a moment because some of you are still going, and so? Like, yeah, great. We know they're two different groups of people. <clears throat> so, here's my theory. They didn't expect Jesus to meet the need of the 5,000 in the beginning because they've never seen anything happen like that before. It completely blew their mind. They've seen him heal one person individually, maybe a small group of lepers together, something like on a smaller magnitude. But this is like 20,000 people all at once, miracle, 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 did not expect it. And my guess is they talked about it and they were like, man, that's unbelievable. God provides. And isn't it ironic that God had 12 basketfuls left at the end that each represent one of the tribes of Israel. And so God is showing that He is completely providing for the Jewish people, completely meeting all the needs far and above what we could expect. Man, that makes a lot of sense to me. God always cares for His children. Okay? Totally get it. Makes sense. The difference the second time is this. They weren't His children. The difference the second time is These people were not the chosen ones. 
These people were on the outside looking in. They were not a part of Israel. They weren't even in good terms with the people of Israel. This is like for some the enemy. This is for some the ones that are ruling over them. This is like completely outside the paradigm that God would want to bless this group of people. This one makes sense. All the Jewish people fed to completeness, totally get it. All of these people, I don't get it. I think the disciples knew that Jesus could do the miracle. I just think they assumed he wouldn't. I think they assumed, based on their preconceived ideas, based on their assumptions about who's in and who's out, that I think they thought, he wouldn't do it here. Over there, yeah. They even said, we have, we have food. They knew they had seven loaves. It wasn't like he was trying to figure out, with it, like, hey, we only have seven, you should send them. And I just don't think they assumed he would. You see, Jesus has a way of messing with our assumptions. He has a way of expanding our understanding of who is in and who is out. We've talked about this many times in the past. We are quick to define who gets the blessing and who doesn't. Who has the favor and who doesn't. Who's in, who's out. The the church as a whole is so good at drawing these lines and determining and deciding. But I would say that the entire New Testament is an exercise in reorienting our thinking to understand who is included. The entire New Testament is a reorienting, the changing of our thinking to understand who's included, who gets the favor, who's on the inside. I mean, look at the stories in the New Testament. Jesus comes to the the most religious of people and he says, who's your neighbor? And they're like, I don't know who my neighbor is. And Jesus goes, well, let me tell you a story. And he starts to tell him a story. And who's the hero at the end of this story? The Samaritan. The rejected, the outsider, the one not included, isn't just included, he's the hero. You thought that group of people that you consider half-breeds, that you avoid their section of the country when you walk through it, that people is the hero. That people, those people, they're on the inside. They're included. Remember the time where Jesus' story is told, someone invites everybody to their wedding. He's going to come, it's going to be this amazing banquet. And person after person, yeah, I can't come, I've got something came up with my family. Yeah, I can't come, I, I got work to do. Yeah, I can't come, I'm not really interested. Yeah, I can't come, I don't have a nice suit to wear. Yeah, I can't come. All these reasons. And nobody the text says, it's coming to the party. So what does the party host do? What does Jesus do in the illustration? He goes out to the poor. He goes out to the marginalized. He goes out to those on the streets. He goes out to those who aren't religious, to those who don't meet the standard, to those who would be considered on the outside. And he says, hey, you're all invited. And they're the ones celebrating at the wedding feast. They're the ones on the inside, not on the outside. The, the person listening to these stories is going, time out. That doesn't work that way. We're the chosen ones. We're the included ones, right? You see Peter 
in Acts chapter 10. We talked about this when we went through the series in Acts. Acts chapter 10. The gospel is only for Jewish people. A sheet comes down. He's like, no, God, uh uh-uh, don't like it. Nope. Sheet comes down again. I still don't like it. Don't tell me this, right? And then he's like, I don't even believe it. And then all these little circumstances happen where it becomes obvious to him that we are also included. If it wasn't for like Acts 10 in that moment, we're all out. You realize that, right? So like at one point, we were, as the text says, engrafted. We were like, we joined in on the goodness. We received the grace. The outsiders, the excluded, were let in. You see foreigners welcome. You see women welcome. You see disabled, poor, broken. You see those that are religious but have it all wrong welcomed. You see all these stories of the one that's not supposed to be in being let in. Even uh, six, eight months ago, maybe longer now, I spoke on the Ethiopian eunuch. There's this understanding, even in that text, that the foreigner, the, the outsider is included. The sexually different is included. All these people that you go, man, that doesn't make any sense to us, are the ones that are on the inside. And I think this story is really a story to cause us to question our way of seeing things. To question who I thought was to be included might need altering. So here's my question. Who have you assumed is not included? Who have you assumed is not an insider or an equal or a person fully deserving of God's grace? I know some of you are going, well, no, no one. I, I don't ever think that. You remember that story of the laborers? It's like my favorite and I hate it story all at the same time. Jesus goes, yeah, you want to work? Denarii for the day? Awesome. Sign you up. You want to work? Good. You want to work? Yep, yep. All the way through the day. Last guy, been sitting around doing nothing. Hasn't been hired by anybody. And probably, as according to like the understanding of history, probably disabled. Probably an unable really to work. He's like, hey, there's an hour left in work. Do you want to come? And the guy's like, sure. I mean, nobody ever hires me. Absolutely. And he, and he brings him. And then he pays. This is where Jesus is like, what are you doing, Jesus? Just start on this end. Pay them. Let them go. Right? And everybody's happy. You can still pay this guy a full denier. Nobody needs to know. Right? Be smart about this. And Jesus goes, hey, you. Yeah, the guy that worked for an hour, here you go. Full day's wage. These guys down here are like, oh, dude, this is amazing. An hour full day's wage, we are running in the money, right? We are, this, this is going to be awesome. And then he's like, full day's wage, full day's wage, full, 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 that's it. I'm out. Good work, guys. And they're like, what are you talking about? They shouldn't be what? Included. They shouldn't get the same thing I got. No, 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 no. They need to be pointed out to them that they're in sin. They need to be pointed out to them that they're, they're not the same as me. I've been doing this a whole lot longer than they have. I've served way more people than they have. Like, I've got to be on the inside. They're on the outside. We're so quick to draw these lines. And maybe what God needs is to reorient our thinking. So I gave you five applications. I'm convinced that there are more. Today's Choose Your Own. But my encouragement is choose one. Choose one. 
Maybe there's something you heard here this morning that you need to discuss with your group, that you need to take back to somebody you're in accountability with, that you need to, to think on more, you need to marinate on the idea, you need to wrestle with it, and ask yourself, how can I have this text shape me? How can I think differently about the Scriptures? How can I think about my own life and the ways to apply it? And may we be the people that practice the text, not just learn about it, not just think it, but may we be a people who 